You are listening to another episode of the Darkest Hour podcast, the show that delivers very loving and meticulous autopsies of horror films from the past and present. Tonight we're looking back quite a ways and we're excited to have a special guest to help us unravel the mysteries of Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, 1982's third installment in the Halloween franchise. And uh, I just want to say to our guest, thank you so much, Emily Ruha. I, I really am glad that you could join us. How are you tonight? I am doing wonderful. Thank you for having me on here. I'm looking forward to talking about this film. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think this is going to be a very interesting conversation, that's for sure. I am John Evans, of course, and I'm joined by our regular co-hosts, Michael T. Kuchek, Vikram Wheat. Vic, how are you this evening? I'm fantastic, John. You know, I was just thinking, we always say we're, we're giving a, a loving and thorough autopsy to movies from the past and present. Wouldn't it be great? If we could do it to movies from the future? <laughs> you know, I almost said that. Uh, I think I paused I because I'm like, I, I almost said it. And you you're, you might be onto something. It's like uh, uh, Spaceballs, you know? We, it's, we get it now before it's even been made. We could watch the new uh, David Gordon Green Halloween. <laughs> yeah, well, let's just ditch Halloween 3 altogether and just start talking about the new Halloween movie before we've seen it. Exactly. Or like so, a Halloween movie we'll, from 30 years from now. Imagine right. what that yeah. might look like. I'm we sure should it'll do happen. that and then we should then look back on on that review when it comes out and see where we went right and where we went wrong. It'll be like a, it'll be like a time capsule that we bury when we're children. All right, this is blowing my mind. Um, yeah. It's far too trippy. How are you tonight, Mike? What's uh, what's new in your world? Uh, you know me, my cup runneth over. I'm doing a uh, re-edit of Death Metal per notes from my producing partners. So that's uh, kind of my full-time job at the moment. So Very cool. What I was able to submit to festivals is kind of the, the festival cut where it's like, okay, this is a story, but it needs a lot more juice and a lot more tightening. So that's occupying my days at the moment. Oh, well, that is filmmaking, sir. Let's uh, oh, yeah. double back to our guest tonight since, of course, uh, she's a newcomer to the show. Um, Emily, uh, why don't you just uh, 
let the audience know uh, kind of who you are and what you're up to out there. Yes, of course. Well, I am the exhibition producer for Scare LA, Los Angeles' premier Halloween convention. So I know quite a bit about Halloween and horror movies. Uh, aside from that, I am also an actress and director. And the soonest thing that will be coming out is called Nine Ways to Hell. It's an anthology film based on Dante's Inferno. So you can see my short in there along with eight others that are absolutely phenomenal. Very cool. Thanks for the heads up on that. And Mike, since, uh, of course, you brought Emily into the fold here tonight to join us to tackle this film, why don't you uh, let us know uh, how you met and what the backstory is there, because it's a pretty cool story. Oh, Emily was scripty on Killer Party. Yes, my uh, first time being a script supervisor. And then, um, of course, we had a little mishap, which meant that um, half of the filming happened uh, about a month later, right? Yeah. So I had to then uh, have continuity with a month in between. We had to completely get out of the set and then redecorate it all again. And I only noticed three errors in the final film, so I'm pretty happy with that. Dang. Not not only have you never done the job before, but you're throwing a challenge that would uh, test the mettle of anybody with any any level of experience. Fantastic stuff. (laughs) Well, we uh, we always start when uh, we're discussing these films, Emily, with the first time that we uh, saw the film. What would be your, uh, I guess, relationship with Halloween 3, Season of the Witch? Well, it is a film that is older than I am. But I saw it for the first time, I think I was about eight. Um, I've gotten into the horror movie uh, realm extremely early in life. And I remember seeing the box at Hollywood Video and seeing Season of the Witch and saying, this is awesome. I loved witches. Put it in and thought, what in the world am I watching? (laughs) Where's the witches? (laughs) Yes, and it had no Michael Myers. I had no clue what was going on. But I I really enjoyed it. And as I got older, I I think I like it more and more. It is my favorite of the Halloween um, franchise. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's so distinctive. Yeah, it's a cult classic. That's a bold statement, Emily, and I'm going to have questions for you later. That's all right. Well, Vic, uh, since you uh, chimed in there, why don't you uh, share your experience with this uh, particular film? I think, and Emily, you're not familiar with this, so I the first Halloween movie I ever rented was Halloween 2, and I watched the first five minutes of it thought the movie was over because it ended with Michael Myers. It began with Michael Myers being shot and took it back to the video store. And then the, the guy at the video store, we were like, it's, this is fucked up. Like this only is the last few minutes of the movie. The guy was like, no, you guys are idiots. Like, please go get Halloween one. And so then we watched that. And then we watched Halloween two and we were like, Oh, okay. Now we get it. And then we watched Halloween three and we're like, wait, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> It was my experience with this whole franchise is one of mostly of confusion, which I think is why when we get to Halloween four, I have a tremendous affection for it because it's the first time I was on level ground in the franchise. So, yeah, so it was that was mostly like I remember watching this and yes, just being utterly confused almost the entire time and then subsequently watching it again and kind of going oh, like, all right, I know this has nothing to do with Michael Myers. And how does it exist as a movie in itself? Badly, but also a lot of fun. So, yeah, it's uh, uh, I, I enjoy it quite a bit. But, yeah, it's, I, I come at it for me. It's really a weird angle. Yeah, I don't even remember the first time I saw this film, to be honest. I mean, normally I have some kind of a story or, you know, this or that memory that is vivid about it. But somewhere along the line, I saw it. And obviously it it makes an impression and yeah, it's just such a weird curiosity piece as, as a film, uh, you know, given that it sort of exists 
outside of the confines of the franchise as we know it and the idea of it being like a twilight zone or a night gallery kind of a franchise where each film would take on some other story within the mythology of halloween um which you know we've kind of seen play out within uh, like that trick-or-treat film um but never on like a anthology uh, franchise at the feature level so it would have been interesting if it had played out that way but of course uh, you know, not to bury the lead here, this movie was a flop, financially speaking, and they, they promptly went back to Michael Myers afterwards. But yeah, I've always kind of uh, liked it for its weirdness and the body snatchers kind of vibe that it has. Uh, you know, just very weird combination of genre elements that, you know, definitely makes for a, a very unique film. So Mike, uh, tell us about your uh, relationship with this one. Nothing terribly bizarre. It was on Showtime, I think. Um, and at the time, I'm like, I'm I'm going to watch this movie, and <laughs> and uh, you're sitting there and you're watching it, and it's like robots, <laughs> right? Where's Michael Myers? <laughs> robots. Well, it's funny because Michael Myers is in the movie, but in yeah, a very I, I, meta way. I did oh. notice that Dick Warlock plays one of the assassins. Yeah. Well, not only that, but just we get glimpses of the actual film is on television. In oh, film. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that yeah. makes it so that this is really the only film of the se- uh, series that's set in the real world. Mm-hmm. Because if all the other ones tied to Michael Myers from that first film or, you know, that first film there, that means that they are all, all just movies in this world that is the we- the real world. <laughs> where they right. watch Halloween one like we do. Exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you get that vibe in this film that, like, I think other movies, uh, Blair Witch 2 notably tried to do this, where, you know, the assumption with the sequel or the reboot is that the uh, the film franchise that we've seen up to this point exists, but now, you know, now we're in the real world and, and, and it's not a movie. This film as a whole counts as an experiment that obviously failed on several levels, but I am certainly glad exists. I like the adventurousness of this entire movie. And yeah, it's like I, like probably pretty much everyone else in the entire world. I was baffled the first time I watched it, but I've since come back to it and watched it maybe six or seven times since then. And I, I grow to enjoy it even more when I watch it again for this podcast. I was thoroughly enjoying it. So yeah, yeah uh, it definitely grows on you, uh, especially when you know what it is going in. I would say that the other thing about this film is you don't think of the Halloween movies as the evil druid franchise, but they introduced that mythology in Halloween 2, and 3 just completely sprints down the road with it. I, w- I would say that this is as close to an evil druid movie as we have outside of, say, The Wicker Man. Well, you mentioned Stonehenge earlier, and yeah, like that's yeah. one of the key parts of the villain's plan is that he's stolen a fragment of it, uh, actually a big piece of it, and then he's knocking off fragments of it uh, to put in these uh, microchips. So, yeah, yeah. and of course he's, you know, the fact that he's Irish is, like, extremely, and the whole company has these sort of Irish uh, motifs and uh, references to it. Like, they're they're banging the druid uh, drum pretty hard in this film. I struggle to think of another evil druid film uh outside of uh maybe friedkin's the guardian if you remember that one mm-hmm. the most notable aspect of that film is a guy gets eaten alive by a pack of wolves in his kitchen 
uh, which is a lot of fun. I haven't seen that <laughs> in so long. It's yeah, it's mostly a garbage film, but it, it does have its high points. <laughs> well, something else we haven't done before, but I am going to do uh, here is just give the briefest of vague synopses before we go into it, just to kind of refresh people's memory, or if you know anyone uh, listening, I, I wouldn't advise that you um, listen to this without having seen the film at all. But just you know, I'll I'll give you a, a big overview um, so you know what the hell we're talking about. Uh, the main character in this film is a doctor uh, who becomes lured into this uh, conspiracy involving a, not a toy maker exactly, but they make these novelties, uh, which mostly in this day and age are Halloween masks, as Halloween is is looming. And gradually he and a young woman whose uh, father has died, you know, in connection to these events, they begin investigating it and they discover that there's a very disturbing and unsettling master plan that involves getting children to wear these masks at a certain time on Halloween night and something horrible will happen to them all at the same time. Uh, We discussed last time with Halloween 2 that uh, Tommy Lee Wallace, the protege of John Carpenter was approached to direct that film and he didn't like the script. He thought it was just sort of a dumber, bloodier version of Halloween one. And and now he, you know, embraced this and did a rewrite on the script. Apparently it's in some ways a more traditional film, which I guess is what he was uh, objecting to about the slasher, you know, very slasher focused Halloween two in that, like, this is kind of an old fashioned movie in a lot of ways, you know, it's got, you know, kind of a classical investigation at the center of it. And, you know, it's a, again, it's a conspiracy, a paranoid thriller in some ways. And uh, that's what, you know, attracted him to it. And of course, we jettison the slasher completely. The original screenwriter had a different way that he was going with it with more of the warlock in that magical way. And then when they wanted to put more of the blood, the slasher type elements into it, he actually asked for his name to be removed from the film. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's really drastic. I don't think that this was all too egregious of a film. I think that it was really fun and put together. So whatever his original script must have been for him to want to be completely removed from this film really intrigues me. I wish I could have read that script. Yeah, it's the guy who did huh. the Quatermass films, which we're probably somewhat familiar with, kind of a uh, British horror sci-fi series. Uh, Quatermass in the Pit, I remember very vividly because I saw it too young and it scared the crap out of me. Yeah, oh, oh. yeah there, there, there is a very 50s, early 60s-ish, there, uh, the, the construction of it yeah. is very, uh, I, I, I hesitate to use old-fashioned, but uh, traditional, I guess you could say. It, it does feel like an episode of uh, a, a television anthology in a lot of ways, but it also kind of combines this kind of weird magical super science. <laughs> There's uh, computers, man. <laughs> it's computers, dude. It's microchips with lasers. And they're gonna broadcast a, a thing over the airwaves, man. And it's gonna, you know, it, it, like the the idea of using haunted microchips in Halloween masks, and then you're gonna broadcast what's basically an evil spell over a uh, a Halloween TV show that will make your head turn into bugs. <laughs> there, there's something 
I, I, there's something very brilliant about that, and I, I can I see almost a direct analogy to Prince of Darkness in a way, where it's kind of a combination of you know very grounded, very traditional like like weird magic type stuff with a scientific element. And you couldn't say it's the pseudo-science. It's not a cave full of druids and robes. It's a bunch of robots sitting at desks in front of giant computers. You know, I thought of it more as like the corporate America versus the average person. Mm-hmm. So I really liken it a lot more to the film called uh, The Stuff. Oh yes, yes. Well, and I think that it's definitely that <laughs> the idea of consumerism and and then having this corporation who does not have your best interests in mind and what that can lead to when you're just buying without knowing who you're buying from. The stuff is an interesting uh, uh, pull because that was my take on it. And this, I think, was sort of subsequently uh, uh, Deborah Hill came on board with the same idea. What this strikes me as is a 70s paranoia film, right? That this is like, they, I mean, obviously sort of side invasion of the body snatchers, maybe a little bit of Rosemary's Baby, but you can also feel the parallax view or... or uh, right. Heimer did seconds. Any movie where you're in a town where everywhere you turn, everybody's against you. And so when I hear about the the rewrite that uh, Tommy Lee Wallace did to up the gore, I mean, what I really feel like is it, there's a good movie here. If you take out the clockwork men ripping people's heads off and gouging people's eyes out. <laughs> I love that, Vic. Well, I love it every well, time they do it. Yeah. <laughs> The problem is they're separate movies, right? Yeah, yeah. That's the problem is there's a great movie about witches and there's a weird movie about guys made out of gears that behave Water. like robots or whatever. But it's the the one the one about the 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 witches and the town and everything else. I mean that falls right in with Rosemary's Baby or something like that. And the stuff I think is very much like that in that they were they were both just a bit too late. If you've yeah. done done those ideas in in 75 or 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 78 even by the time we got to 85 i feel like we'd kind of seen all that stuff we knew about 82 82 right yeah 85 was the stuff sorry oh but but vic i I absolutely agree with you in the sense that uh, there's a really good witch movie in here there's really good 70s paranoid thriller because uh, all the rooms are bugs everyone works for the company town there's uh, cameras everywhere you know very paranoid thrillerish with the sci-fi element it's, it's almost like a michael crichton film in a yeah. lot of ways but i will say that what makes me so thoroughly love this movie is the fact that it takes two completely disparate films and kind of sloppily nails them together with, uh, I would say, unique uh, results. I, I, there, there isn't another movie like th- that's exactly like this out there. It's, it's like trying to rhyme the word orange. Yeah, I don't think that there's enough juice here as far as uh, you know, writing and research and authenticity to to make a, a, a three days of of the Condor out of it. You know, I, I think that the fact that this movie is so batshit nuts and yeah. mashes up genres and you know goes for it with some you know crazy gore effects even if they're not particularly well uh executed tom savini had nothing to do with this movie obviously that's why i like it is because it's just you can see the seams on the frankenstein uh monster that they've sewed together but at the same time it's not so incoherent or 
uh, uneven that it doesn't kind of develop its own identity. And I, th I think it does develop its own identity. And, and that's why it really stands out. That's why I bring up Prince of Darkness. It's uh, only even vaguely in the same area code. Uh, I, I really think that the movie is weakest for me, not in the combination of magic and sci-fi elements, but in the broader characters, the su super Irishman who uh, runs the motel and like the kooky people who show up at the motel, uh, the top salesman guy and his family. They feel like characters out of Mary with Children. You know what they're they feel so like is um, Friday the 13th Part 5, The New Beginning. Yeah, you have this kind of parallax view film. You have creepy stuff. You have Dean Cundey cinematography. So it, it feels in a lot of ways uh, like a Carpenter film bag because it has the same look to it. But then, like, out of nowhere, you get these super, super broad characters. And I will say that I love the scene in which little Billy... Uh, gets the mask's effects for a variety of reasons. <laughs> I, love, I love that that kid dies <laughs> and his whole family dies along with him. Uh, but I also it's love very the... satisfying. I think yes. what it is. You're waiting for it the whole film. You want it to happen a little bit, yeah. and then you get that. I, yeah, you want to see I, if, how this thing plays out when it when it works. Yeah, if anything, I, I you know, it just occurred to me that the film does a really good job of making us despise those really broad, dumb characters who show up at the motel. Because it then goes about dispatching them in really satisfying ways. Uh, yeah, it, we've talked about that in relation to Friday the 13th a lot where, um, right. you know, it, if, I, if you kill characters that we love, it's a tragedy. If you kill characters that are obnoxious, you know, the audience can have some fun with that and not take it yeah. too seriously. <laughs> yeah. I think really interesting about this film as compared to some of the other Halloween films is that in this one, you know, the deaths aren't directly related to, to people having a lot of sex. Yeah. All right. Let's let's focus here on the main character, Daniel. He is apparently a sex god of the '80s. He has a woman that <laughs> just meets, that is just throwing herself at him in a hotel room because they have nothing else to do that night, while still <laughs> keeping the woman in the hospital, doing all his work for him. He calls her yep. up on the phone. She's still trying to to get a date with him. I don't really know how he does. It. <laughs> you didn't find him to be a sexual tyrannosaurus. I mean, I, I suppose it's in the mustache. That's all I can think. <laughs> <laughs> well, Emily, I, I should also point out that Tom Atkins in the fog beds Jamie Lee Curtis within about 15 minutes of meeting her character. So that dude had the early days mojo rocking, I guess. It, I think it, it's it, partially it was... him and partially the time. Uh, you know, like we, we get yeah. that real sort of pre-AIDS uh, promiscuity vibe from these movies. Also because they're horror movies of that period. So part of the mandate of the genre is like, well, we have to get some TNA in there somewhere. There has to be some kind of sex in here somewhere. Where can we shove it? Oh, well, maybe they they screw when they meet. I don't know. <laughs> maybe that happens. Sure, put it in. Sounds good. Put it in. Uh, <laughs> all right, I see what you did uh, there. I think that the yeah. interesting thing about the opening title sequence is it's very much an attempt to kind of take the slow zoom in on the jack-o'-lantern that we got in the first two installments and modernize that because, you know, even though a lot of it is sort of fake science and this kind of, you know, the pseudo trappings of computers and microchips and whatnot, this film definitely is modernizing some old stuff, like modernizing. This is like the, the 80s version of witchcraft. And consequently, we have this sort of video gamey, uh, very slow pixel by pixel assimilation of a, uh, 
of a jack-o'-lantern on a computer screen. It struck me just as kind of a digital homage to the first film. One of the things that I that I really noticed watching this uh, this time, and, I, and this will come up over and over again, this was the first time I wrote it down, as disconnected as this is from the other Halloween films, there are a number of stylistic homages to the to Carpenter style in general and to the first two Halloween films in particular, where it felt like if we take the things that worked in the first two films and put them on a different story, we'll get the same effect. And they were wrong, but you could see, <laughs> but you could see why they did what they did. And so I think this was the very first instance of that was we're going to open with a jack-o'-lantern. And it's, but this time it's going to be an Apple IIe digital jack-o'-lantern, a, a, an Oregon Trail jack-o'-lantern. <laughs> <laughs> I actually dig the, the weird creepiness of being that zoomed in on this kind of low-res thing because you're kind of – you spend the majority of it kind of squinting and trying to figure out what you're looking at. I thought that the reveal was actually kind of effective. It's not your father's Halloween, man. This one has computers. We're not using boring old – at pumpkins anymore we're using a digital picture of a pumpkin dude because <laughs> it's modern this movie is also from that era of war games pcs are common subject of uh, of strife i think our society as a whole is, was figuring out how computers were gonna make our lives different and uh, between thrillers and horror movies you can find like kind of a, a murderer's row of Films that kind of explore that idea. Yeah, because the possibilities were endless, and we didn't really know how it was going to shake out, and we didn't really comprehend what it was capable of, but we knew it would be powerful and transformative, so that's kind of scary in a way. What's the one with Chris Penn and the pigs? Do you guys remember that? Where he's he's in a a military school. Basically, it's a really super low-res version of Prince of Darkness where he, he finds a satanic computer in the basement. And it lets him summon a herd of pigs that eat eat his enemies. I've not seen that one. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna Google that, Mike, and I'm gonna watch it after we go. Oh, it's fantastic! It's incredible. Yeah. From there, after we we get out of this, you know, this promise that this is a high tech version of Halloween. We go to Northern California, of course, you know, Silicon Valley type associations there. And we get a very Dean Cundy kind of uh, opening shot, very John Carpenter. And by the way, my only note on this is so much of the John Carpenter look that we give him credit for is clearly Dean Cundy. I mean, not to say that John Carpenter didn't produce this film, but um, like the, the visual style is clearly, you know, as much Cundy as it is Carpenter, in my opinion. Yep. Look, look no farther than those headlights. Uh, th- right. th- those two guys had a very distinct way of shooting cars and headlights. Yes, yes. And so the movie opens with this guy, uh, you know, very kind of classical, again, thriller open where a, a man is, is fleeing from someone or something. And uh, he's got a very blue collary vibe. Um, I thought he was like a gas station attendant or something um, looking at him, uh, which doesn't really jibe with the backstory that we get about this fellow. But anyway, he's being pursued by a menacing car. And again, like in that kind of post Watergatey kind of world, these sort of men in suits and late model sedans following people. Uh, they're definitely tapping into, you know, fear of corporations and government and all of that and, you know, just wealth. They're almost literal men in black. 
Yeah, and of course we find out that these men are, you know, like you, you always see soulless agents in suits. Well, these guys are literally soulless agents in suits. I had to do research because I was really sure that this guy was either Dan Hedaya or Dick Miller. <laughs> oh, you know, I, I saw, you know who he is? Movie, I like paused it. What? This is the guy from Reanimator, Dr. Gruber, whose eyes like burst out of his head at the beginning of Reanimator. Yeah, which I subsequently got, but I was like on the list of like, blue collar guys you could just throw into a movie with no backstory and be like oh that guy looks like a mechanic it's like dick miller and dan hedaya and this guy uh those guys have mugs that are pretty unmistakable though wouldn't you agree it's stunning that you never ended up on a ship in uh in in an aliens movie (laughs) yeah i actually i enjoyed that i i think that the whole um over the top way it all is with with the guy, especially that car crash, sort of crushing the guy mm-hmm. at such a low speed, that really got me. <laughs> um, yeah, in case that. no one I knows like what she's talking about, bit. the guy is being strangled and he pulls out like the block on a chain uh, to get a car rolling, and the car just rolls right into the robot who's uh, choking him. In any other version of that series of shots or, or, the, or that trope, it would be a weapon that he would use to, to crack the dude on the skull. And it, it's, it's kind of a fun change-up to have it pull the block out of a wheel of a car that then kind of trundles forward and smushes the, his attacker at like three miles an hour but between the, the two cars. I kind of laughed at it, but at the same time, I also think that it's an early indication of the non-humanity of that character. They're weirdly strong, but also weirdly fragile in other ways, too. Because, you know, later on, our protagonist can just shove his hand through their chest and pull out goo. So Yeah, they're like uh, these little, almost like a scarecrow or something. That they're stuffed, filled with these these workings, but they are, and they have this odd, you know, strange strength. But uh, you can kind of pull them apart. This is also the first example of something that we see a couple of times. And, Mike, you alluded to it, that these guys... For some reason, it never occurs to Cochran to give them guns, and so they're always doing things like choking people and gouging their eyes out and pulling their heads off. And what that does is give their victims lots of time to reach for anything that's in arm's reach. (laughs) I was struck by the fact that they never look to see what their victims are reaching for. Like, they're so focused on their strangling and gouging that they keep getting caught off guard by things like cars moving at three miles an hour. Yeah, but he, I would he, say Michael Myers also does strangling and, and stabbing and things like he doesn't have a gun and do a traditional thing either when he attacks well, his vi- victims. Right. It's just in Halloween three, because it's the real world, they are a little bit smarter and the victims fight back a little bit better. Mm-hmm, That's mm-hmm. true. But Michael Myers is also immortal, so he's not as worried about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, these, these guys. Really you know, these guys are are thinking about their own mortality here. That's, good. That's a good point. You're right. They're yeah. not thinking. They, they, they have very limited programming. They can do stuff like drive cars and hunt people down, but they are in, in a work kind of a way. They're like proto terminators. They're like yeah. the, they're the T fourteen and a half uh, <laughs> model. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah. Well, uh, there's a, a you know point later, much later in the film, where we realize that one of them may have been uh, undercover, shall we say, for some period of time. But I think it's yeah. clear that like carrying on advanced conversations is, is well beyond their capability. You know, these things are yeah. very primitive. 
Yeah, why don't they carry guns? Uh, I think it is uh, to, to make it more of a horror movie than a thriller. If it was truly a parallax view, then obviously they would gu- have guns. But if they're grabbing you by the head and yanking your, your skull off your shoulders, then it's, I mean, that's a clear horror movie aspect. I think know, that so. I totally agree. That's probably why they did it. It's also quieter. I, I noticed that they're refer- the movie refers to them as assassins in the credits. And mm-hmm. I, I think that that's Cochran's use for them is to quietly do away with people in really horrible ways, but it, they're not going to show up with a Tommy gun or anything like that. Well, one does use a weapon later, I will point out. And that's true. Know, a very simple weapon. So yeah. we now have a guy in the uh, gas station watching this uh, sort of subliminal, flashy, uh, disturbing commercial that the Silver Shamrock Corporation is putting out on a countdown uh, every day, you know, it's it's slightly different. Eight more days till Halloween. <laughs> Halloween. Halloween. Eight more days till Halloween. Silver Shamrock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, they, they did a really good job of creating a theme song that's both annoying but also an impenetrable earworm. And you can't get that song out of your head once you... I, I mean, obviously, it's London Bridge is falling down, but it's it's still... It's, it's a powerful piece of music. It, it exactly inhabits the character of what it needs to be. Gee, I wonder uh, what our intro music for this episode will be. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what we're seeing in, in uh, under the opening credits is not only do we get that digital jack-o'-lantern, but also flashes at us before it d- disappears. Yes, yes, I should have mentioned that. Yeah, it's uh, it's doing that subliminal thing in the opening mm-hmm. credits. Um, yeah. So yeah, we've got this crazy rainy night that's kind of uh, like the fog um, in, in some ways, like this very foreboding atmosphere. And uh, the guy, you know, comes stumbling in and, you know, desperate for help. And uh, this uh, kindly but, uh, you know, we're definitely worried about getting involved in some trouble uh, gas station attendant takes him to the hospital, which of course is the place of work of our Dr. Chalice. By the way, I got to say, um, dopey names in horror movies, um, <laughs> always amuse me, but we have a Dr. Chalice and an Ellie Grimbridge in this film. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Ellie Grimbridge. But yeah, it is interesting that this is very much uh, the same territory as The Fog. Uh, we've we've taken Halloween from Illinois to the fog country. Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, John, I don't, I don't understand. What's your problem with Chalice and Grimbridge? My, my best <laughs> my, my close, close friends named Chalice and Grimbridge. Oh, yeah. Dude. It's like Smith and Anderson uh, in your neighborhood. Exactly. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did you guys notice when the uh, he brings the gas station attendant and the guy the, hears the music and he starts to freak out and, and they're going to kill us. They're going to kill us all. And he says, quick, give me X many cc's of Thorazine. And I was like, I like that's another one where I was like, that's got to be a nod to Halloween, right? Like, I'm not a psychiatrist, but that guy doesn't need Thorazine, right? Like, maybe a little <laughs> Thorazine. Yeah, you're yeah, right. Yeah. That's a that's a heavy, um, a very heavy antipsychotic 
Exactly. Yeah. yeah well, yeah. the the other thing that this film shares with Halloween too is the presence of a drunk doctor in the ER. Because <laughs> uh, in two, as you may recall, he comes back from the same country club party as uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's parents is attending, and they even make mention that that uh, that he had been drinking, but he's still called into work anyways. He's still going to perform life and death uh, medical operations. And the same thing with Chalice here, and uh, that's kind of the running theme is that this dude drinks. He is a drinker. I mean, Ellie is able to track him down because she goes to the hospital looking for him, and they point her to the local bar where they know that he's going to be. That's one of my my favorite notes that I have, yeah. Yeah, He he goes completely out of his way to score a sixer. Uh, On the way up there, he scores a bottle of booze that helps him to uh, get in the good graces of the local crazy Ralph guy. This dude drinks, man. Maybe it's the whole part of the Irish thing. I don't know. It could be. It could be. a vicious stereotype, Mike. And I, <laughs> I know. I, I know. It's a terrible stereotype. That uh, uh, hold on a second. <laughs> Based in fact. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, uh, well, we get uh, a, a shot or a scene rather of Doctor Chalice at home before uh, he goes to the hospital. And this is mostly notable for uh, establishing that he has a child of his own that he uh, or two children that he's going to be yep. worried about um, once uh, once you know the the threat to the the nation's children become evident to him. But it's also of interest because we have Nancy Loomis, everybody yes. playing his wife, and of course, yeah, Nancy Loomis. Uh, she has a different name by this point, uh, married name, I guess, but um, she was Annie in the first film, and we even get a glimpse of her as a corpse in the second film. So now she's playing a completely different character in a movie where her original movie is also in the movie. So that's that's yeah. pretty trippy. She plays uh, a pretty spot-on bitchy ex-wife. This is the only scene that we actually have her have her in, but apparently they pulled her in for some ADR because it's very clearly her voice when he makes the phone calls at home. And I mm-hmm. have to assume that she's ad-libbing it, but she does an excellent job of jumping up this dude's ass every time he calls in. <laughs> but this character is very often a very broad trope. But for once, she actually does have a point because he's constantly like, I'll pick up the kids on this date. And then he doesn't. I'll pick up the kids at this time. And then he doesn't. He finally shows up to pick up the kids. Ah, I got pulled into work. Like, I, I you know, if, even though she's very harsh with him to a, a comedic degree, I could kind of see her point of view with this guy a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Back then, you could just stop answering the phone and nobody could bother you. Like, you know, you don't have a cell phone. So he calls her at one point and then... You know, if if he doesn't want to call her back to to keep her updated, he can do whatever the hell he wants. He can go off the the grid, and and that just seems so weird and quaint uh, in 2018. He reminded me of Jim Carrey in Liar Liar, and I thought his kids were like, I wish for just one day my dad would get trapped in a town with a crazy druid witch. (laughs) (laughs) That really straightens him out. (laughs) 
It is in some ways very true because when I was growing up at the tail end of this era, uh, when I was a wee lad, I knew a lot of kids' fathers who were totally cool with spending all their time watching a football game in the bar rather than hang around at home. They rarely saw their fathers. You know, the guy just kind of worked his ass off and relaxed at the bar. And then like every once in a while, when he felt like it, you know, he kind of swing by and drop off like a present or something like that. So I want to also ask... just say here, the kids might have been jerks. He brings them a mask, and then they're just like, eh, we already got one. Yeah. <laughs> you know, let's just say maybe maybe they are also to blame with why he doesn't want to be there. They're spending so much time with Nancy Loomis's uh, character that they're absorbing her less pleasant personality aspects. Well, she looks like such a stiff, conservative person. Yeah. She, she definitely has the proverbial stick up her butt, right? Um, but those masks were crappy that he brought to those kids. Like, those are like 75-cent right. masks, let's be honest. But equally, they're going to at least be uh, different out there because apparently every other child has bought one of three masks. <laughs> yes, that's right. true. Now, if I was a kid and I went out and I just saw everybody was wearing the same mask, I'd be happy that my dad bought me a different one. <laughs> right. You know, it, it would have been truly meta if instead of the, the three masks, they had a fourth and that was the Burn William Shatner mask because of Apparently that one was popular enough that they were selling multiple copies of it at the hardware store in Haddonfield, Illinois. Yeah, that's so five years ago. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's funny because this is kind of in the era of Cabbage Patch kids and things like that where like toys and network TV, you know, they just dominated because there just weren't so many options out there. So it's it's a little more plausible than it would be today that these that everyone has these masks but hey i heard a kitty there nice <laughs> did you bring your cat along on the I'm, I'm i'm sorry my cat yes so the <laughs> feed your cat man <laughs> part of the process of putting the kids down means that i get the cat and then emily puts the kids down and the cat's angry with me right now i'm a little scared she just bit me a couple times oh okay i i can't really move so uh, because uh, she like tore out your achilles tendon <laughs> Tame your cat, Vic. We have a podcast. To strangle me right now! I, oh boy, uh, you're gushing blood all over. Guys, this, this is the ambiance that separates uh, the Darkest Hour podcast from other more studio podcasts. No, it's okay. To- <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's okay. It's great, Vic. Um, are, are you saying that at the moment your pussy whipped? Not only, not only at the moment, but for, for most of the preceding five years. Uh, <laughs> poor Vic. Now we have uh, the guy has been admitted and he said some cryptic things. And, and again, his IQ seems to be extremely low, uh, regardless of the trauma that this man has suffered. He, he, he has not been able to convey any information of, of use to anyone. So the idea that he like, what is he supposed to be like? He runs a toy store or. Uh, yeah. This is an era when a lot of masks were still being sold through these kind of mom and pop toy shops. Mm -hmm. They even make a point of mentioning that are slowly being crushed by the Toys R Us's of the world. Uh, Oh, the irony, of course. R.I.P. Toys R Us. Yeah, this guy probably has a a small town toy shop where the kids hang out after school and engage in lollygagging. uh, (laughs) Engage in lollygagging. 
we, we, we get our first um, really kind of tense and suspenseful sequence here as this quiet hospital, which, by the way, is much more convincing as a hospital to me than the hospital in part two. And then we have the doctor sexually harass his nurse. Okay, what happens is they're joking around and he um, jokingly uh, cups her ass as they're walking down the then we do see a mysterious figure there. When watching it with friends, we said, oh, my God, it's the head of HR. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I spent the whole time watching Halloween 2 thinking, man, HR, none of this would fly with contemporary HR. And this mm-hmm. is just like this dude would get me too inside of five minutes, man. It's crazy. <laughs> well, by the way, he has all of the buttons on his shirt are like it's half unbuttoned. His shirt yeah. inside of his lab coat. So he's, right. he's putting it right out there along with his chest hair. He's like a character out of a soap opera almost. Yeah. You know, the sexually powerful doctor. Hard drinking, hard fighting doctor. So yeah, hard Emily, loving. this guy does nothing for you, correct? <laughs> yes. Yeah, nothing. I, I don't get it. But apparently that's, I mean, it might just be a 1982 thing. I don't know. I wasn't there. It's a lot of fun to see someone, again, who can slap somebody on the ass, and it's fun. I think right now movies are getting really self-aware around it, mm-hmm. so nothing like that's going to fly right now, but it's just in good fun, and I like that. Yeah, it's kind of an innocence, really, uh, in so many ways. Things just didn't seem as complicated or as fraught with real-life ramifications. Uh, it was just kind of dopey entertainment in some ways. Uh, to have a scene like this. and the... the other thing I was thinking about mm-hmm. during the sequence is the podcasts that we put up for Halloween 2, we listed it as the one in the hospital. What do you know? This one is in a hospital, too. A set piece. We have a murder in the hospital room, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, one of our characters is doctor, there's nurses, <laughs> lab techs. Actually, yeah, I mean, we do keep coming back to the, the woman in the morgue for the, the whole movie, so there's yeah. that. But yeah, I mean, we have a lot of uh, shots of this, you know, the really polished dress shoes walking around the hallways. and Maybe Janet from the second one is on duty again because for some reason, <laughs> some guy is just allowed to walk through this hospital with no reason to be there or place to be. And nobody seems to care. Oh, security <laughs> is minimal at this hospital. There's no doubt about that. Far more innocent time. He's just there to visit mom. <laughs> and I think, too, I mean, there's something to be said, again, going back to the stylistic connections to the Halloween movies. All the bad guys walk like Michael Myers. Mm. They walk slowly and deliberately. And even when the doctor is chasing him down the hallway... You know, it's like I'm I'm getting ready to go light myself on fire, but like I'm not in any rush. Like I'm just gonna take my time to get to all those places. That gets established right here, uh, but it carries on throughout the film. These guys are, in a lot of ways, ineffective copies of Michael Myers. They're definitely antagonists in the same area code. Uh, they're they're coming coming from the same tradition. We're gonna tell a non Michael Myers movie, but let's have elements of Michael Myers in our bad guy. Yeah. Let's, have, let's, the, have a, let's have speechless slow-moving automatons that uh, just have masks on but have creepy 80s hair. Like evil ventriloquist dummies. Uh, <laughs> well, it's very possible that Connell Cochran loved watching the Halloween movies so much 
that when uh, he made his little mechanical creatures, he mm. made them sort of Michael Myersy. Yeah, exactly. The yeah. whole thing that he seems to espouse, like what we understand about him more than anything, is that he likes uh, practical jokes. Like there's this sort of nasty sense of humor to what he's trying to do that he. It's all like a gag, you know, and uh, I could I could see a guy like that, you know, watching the entertainment of, of the times and saying, yeah, I could I could do something with that. Yeah, that's the other really, uh, again, old fashioned, I guess would be the term is that our main antagonist kind of started out in life as an evil toy maker. He's almost like a Batman antagonist in a way. But I love the fact that the creepy old woman who gets her head knocked off later on in the movie, he mentions that she's like a collector piece from 1785. But even though it's it's hundreds of years old, uh, it's still lifelike enough to fool Tom Atkins, or Dr. Chalice, I should say. He's plugged into this kind of underworld, the secret society of mechanical automata, of, of building fiddly little things that, that replicate life. It's uh, it's cool, and if anything, I like the fact that you know Michael Myers when he gets you, he does really mundane stuff, like he stabs you with a knife, or he strangles you and your eyes cross, and then you fall over. <laughs> and when these guys get their hands on you, the first death freaked the fuck out of me. When I I, I distinctly recall the first time I saw this movie, I'm like, what's he? doing extend his fist the killer the assassin and then stick his fingers out and then like he's picking up a bowling ball he just thrusts the fingers into this you know immobilized helpless man who's you know closing his eyes in terror into his eye sockets and uh, you know it's it's effective it's a gruesome death and i haven't seen anything like it elsewhere to the best of my knowledge but it also goes with the idea of the practical jokes because mm-hmm. i mean this guy saw too much so what do they do they mm-hmm. pop his eyes out uh, yeah maybe if uh, dr chalice hadn't given him thorazine he could have fought back a little bit <laughs> <laughs> well what are you gonna do the makeup effects, fortunately or unfortunately, are not great in this movie. So it renders them a little more uh, fanciful than they could have been, like just off the charts disturbing, which I think in retrospect, this film, I wouldn't say that it's trying to be PG or anything, but I mean, I think that there's no. that, that kind of, there's a innocence to this movie or a broadness to this movie that I don't think they're trying to break people's minds and souls and, you know, traumatize them for life. Like, this is kind of a popcorn movie. And I think, like, the incredibly horrible uh, conceptually, you know, gore sequences, because I think the woman getting zapped by the medallion in her uh, motel room is also weirdly very disturbing. But if the yeah. if the makeup effects were, like, really top-notch, it, it, it might be too much for a film that's trying to be, you know, I wouldn't say it's aiming at kids, but, you know, like, this is supposed to be a uh, high school kids go to the movies, have a good time, getting scared kind of a film. It's a really gonzo opening to this whole thing. I, he, he crushes this dude's skull by sticking his fingers in his eye sockets. When he's called to task about it, just calmly goes out to his car and lights himself on fire. Well, yeah, you don't know he's a, you know, a robot at that point. So, you I mean, don't. Like, you if don't. you're just watching this movie not knowing <laughs> anything, like, this is definitely by this point in the film when he goes and sets himself on fire and the poor nurse is screaming and, you know, yeah. Dr. Chalice is running and we've got some pretty strong steady cam dynamic uh, camera work as we're following him through the hospital chasing the guy. Like, you're like, what am I watching? Like, this movie is yeah. going to be 
off the hook. It's pretty effective. It's good. Yeah, I, I, I want to say you guys were talking about the robots and everything. Like, I think the fact that the old school technology uh, is a part of it is interesting. Like, you know, in some way, like it's all little gears and, and motors and stuff that you you might have been able to do in the, in the eighteen hundreds. It's a weird, you know, combination of supposedly quasi futuristic technology and like the old tricks of you see like the toys in the. Uh, the old toys uh, during the tour of the Silver Shamrock facility that are, you yeah. know, like just these weird little, almost like a, a cuckoo clock or, you know, those kind of things where these motorized figures just move around at, you know, when the clock strikes 12 or something that, yeah, does go back hundreds of years. Yeah, Cochran never comes around and says it, but I suspect that he's infuse these guys with a certain level of magic because uh, even as, yeah, like a cuckoo clock, they wouldn't be able to like drive around or follow a dude or, you know, make decisions like this. I think it probably has something to do with the yellow goo. It's a cocktail. It's a cocktail. Like you have one part ancient Celtic magic. You have one Mm -hmm. part like the toy maker's art with these really intricate you know, gears and and motors and stuff inside of things. And then the third part is supposedly computer technology and microchips and, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. And so uh, we we, uh, bypass that. And then uh, Chalice has this long conversation on the telephone that's uh, pretty pointless. He has a pointless conversation. (laughs) They cut to the next day and the burning car is still sitting there like – yeah, <laughs> I guess it's a, it's a crime scene, I guess. So they just. Well, I mean, there's not even police tape around it or anything. It's just sitting there still yeah. smoking quietly the next day. Take your kid into the hospital because he uh, bit into an apple with a razor blade in it. It's like, Mom, what's that? why is there a burned out car out front? Emily, what do you think about the, the masks themselves? I think that they're actually pretty darn cool masks. Even mm-hmm. in modern day, I think that you'd have a bunch of people that would actually buy them and put them on for that vintage feel. I really like them. I think it's neat that they actually got a mask maker in to make these masks, and I believe it was the jack-o'-lantern that was made specifically for this film. That's the best mask by far, I think, of the three. Very much intentionally, it ties into the iconography of this series already. Uh, The jack-o'-lantern is important, but it's also just kind of the creepiest mask. If I was watching the bug transformation in person, I do think that the jack-o'-lantern would be the creepiest of all of them. I can't see the same level of of fun, rotting, look as good with the witch or the the skull. No. No, Maybe the Hmm. skull, but the witch doesn't really lend itself, I don't think, as much to this MO. So um, we meet this Grimbridge gal here. Tom Atkins is giving her the rape of the eye. <laughs> Not kidding. They bring her in, and it's one of the rare occurrences where you bring in a close relative to identify the body. And due to the fact that he was literally murdered in a hospital bed, they can bring her in to identify the body in the bed in which he was slain. So <laughs> very convenient. It, 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 yeah, yeah, it was extremely convenient for all parties concerned. Uh, all they had to do was throw a sheet over him. Overall, I, I, I will say I, I like her a lot. I, I think that she gives a solid performance. She's cute. She's sympathetic. I, you know, right off the bat, we're on her side. She's in dire straits, and we understand why she's, you know, she's motivated to find out what happened to her father. I, I, I mean, it's it's clean, clear, strong st- storytelling in a lot of ways. Very classical. I found her more alarming once I, I did a little homework and discovered that she's actually a relationship consultant for Fox News. That's her, 
Yeah. yeah, that's her current gig now. Is that's when, on like literally on Fox and Friends, when they need a relationship person. <laughs> Are you uh, kidding me? Yeah, yeah, Stacey Nelkin. Yes, they, she is the she is the person they call. That's my um, Yeah, well, you have been touched by the uh, volcanic male sexuality of Tom Atkins. You yeah, become an you expert. <laughs> <laughs> she was, apparently, she was cut out of uh, Blade Runner. I think she auditioned for the the Sean Young part, and she didn't get it. And and well, anyways, but yeah, so she was she was in the film, and she didn't make the final cut. And so it seems like. She was one of these people who was kind of an almost was in a bunch of different ways, um, but never quite landed and then found her niche uh, helping conservatives work out their relationship. I think issues. she found her, her niche in Up the Academy with Ralph Macchio, which I remember seeing <laughs> uh, on USA's Up All Night uh, as oh a kid goodness. multiple times. So I yeah. think that's her true legacy. She seems to inhabit the kind of character that uh, she, she reminds me of, uh, say, Jessica Harper, for instance, or um, uh, uh, who's the actress from Hellraiser? Um, you know what I'm talking about. Well, while you're looking that up, um, I will talk about the fact that Halloween with Michael Myers coming down the stairs um, is um, trailered. Um, There's a preview on TV in the bar uh, that Tom Atkins is is hanging out in, which is a horrible bar with no customers. It looks absolutely miserable. (laughs) I think it's empty because he's there in the middle of the afternoon. Sure. I feel with Chalice, why do you need other customers? He's there all the time. That's yeah, why they exactly. their money. <laughs> the hospital staff knows to send visitors to uh, to this bar <laughs> looking for Chalice. The, the last time I saw a beat like that was The Beyond. Do you remember The Beyond when uh, the, the woman who inherits the, the hotel is looking for the doctor and they send her to the bar that he hangs out at? Do you remember that? Uh, not offhand, no. No, you know, okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. It made me laugh. This is where they uh, decide to work together, and they're going to investigate uh, this bizarre crime. And he feels, which I think is a pretty, you know, solid character motivation, that this happened on his watch in his hospital, and, you know, his patient was murdered, and he wants to get to the bottom of it. Now, wait, I was going to ask, did you guys buy that? No, I, I'm pretty sure that he's motivated by her feminine charms. Do, uh... <laughs> What's your take? You're the you're the you're the big fan. Did you did you buy that this happened and this guy needed was willing to sort of sacrifice his many promises to his children and ex wife uh, to get to the bottom of this? Well, he's a gentleman um, in the hotel I don't room. Think that he really... no, no, he's not, John. Just stop. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Sorry. like, really, we've established that he didn't really like his wife or kids that much anyways. Ex-wife. What gets me is how in the world can he – okay, yeah, ex-wife. But how in the world can he take all this time off of work with no notice <laughs> or anything? Is this a regular day? And he's just like, yeah, you know, let, let's go. Yeah, I thought especially they worked, like, Halloween, insane hours. Usually, especially in, in this world of Halloween films, Halloween time in a hospital is very <laughs> – uh, active. A lot of people are going into hospitals. There's stab wounds, psycho killers, and all that. Absolutely. Maybe, uh, hands on. maybe he tells the administration that he's so uh, uh, depressed and worked up emotionally. He's got PTSD from having witnessed this horrible thing. He needs to take some time off. 
Uh, maybe there's a beat that ended up in the cutting room floor in there or something, or maybe the the movie just didn't care. There, it's like fuck it. He gets in the car and they drive off. Well, it's obvious he gets <laughs> away with murder if he spends half of his time like in the bar <laughs> across the street. By the way, and then he's Dr. Stuck, Chalice, yeah. yeah, Doctor Chalice is on the phone right after that scene, talking to his ex-wife and you know making her promises he's not going to keep. And there's a six pack of beer sitting on the phone booth next to him that he then takes to, you know, get into the car with her and take off. Like, we're that clear about where his priorities are, that he bought a sixer of beer to go on this adventure yeah, with. Yeah, sure. <laughs> we're gonna, we're gonna, yeah. uh, how far away is this place? We're going to need at least a sixer. <laughs> also, the kind of era where it's just like, yeah, well, if we're going to be driving for a while, we should we should have some beers in that car, man. <laughs> Right. All right. So they go to Santa Mira, which is uh, apparently the same name of the town in, according to Wikipedia, in the original um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. So they're making a very overt tip of the cap to what they're doing. And it, yeah, it's kind of a, a Stepford Wives sort of vibe to where, you know, they go into this town and every everyone seems to be weirdly subdued or you know kind of a cult movie also you could say a cult vibe yeah because i I mean everybody who isn't a robot is still looking out the window they all refer to mr cochran as a great man and sir it's very very much a a company town even if you removed the sci-fi and the and the magic you would still have you know the makings for a paranoid thriller of some variety yeah well you mentioned how everybody really seems to like this employer and it's cult-like But let me also say that we have seen how women have been treated in other settings, in other professional settings, and I do not see Cochran slapping anybody on the ass. So I'm going to say that these women might actually enjoy having that place as a workplace. (laughs) It's true. We do not see Cochran sexually harass anyone. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) He's got that going for him. He's totally willing with murdering hundreds of thousands of children with black magic, but slap ass in the workplace, that's a line he will not cross. He will not cross that line. <laughs> but, there's, actually something, there's actually something interesting to be said about the fact that given his ability to create these very lifelike humanoids, he mostly creates assassins. Uh, he has this kind of one elderly woman, but... This is a very different world from something like AI or, uh, or uh, Japan, where yeah, the, yeah, there, the, there are no fembots. Yeah, exactly. it's, yeah. it's a pulling the heads off of. Yeah, it's not great. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, he, he could have very easily taken his skills in a, in a far more prurient direction, but in, you know, he, he prefers violence. Well, I don't uh, want to. Um... I, I hate to say it, but he might just be a little too old for that kind of shenanigan at this point in his career. Sure, know. you know. But uh, well, speaking of road beers, by the way, ah, uh, yeah, boy, um, yeah. I, I, I should you just rewind very quickly for just a moment before the the characters hit the road. They do take a moment to swing by her father's dopey little toy shop, uh, and she even mentions in the course of dialogue that it's a. It, it, Exactly indicative of the kind of small town mom and pop shop that's getting swallowed up by large corporations. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think the movie definitely has this kind of thing on its mind. But that's weird because the film has these sort of merchants and vendors and buyers who come to Silver Shamrock to pick up these masks, but it actually is sort of 
lacking the dimension that you might have of the kind of hostile takeovers or, you know, that kind of 80s Wall Street um, vibe that we started to see where, you know, little mom and pops were getting gobbled up. Um, that's actually not something apparently that this guy is doing. Like he just sells you the masks, man. It's a passing of the baton from an older way to the newer. Instead of, you know, uh, multinational conglomerates, these gigantic corporations, we instead have the older setup of, you know, the man who owns the, f- the town factory lived in the largest house on the hill and everyone just kind of bowed and scraped to this guy. And it's an Mr. almost Potter. like, yeah, exactly. It's, it's very, it's almost feudal in a sense. And, uh, you know, when you add in robots and bugs in the rooms and cameras, then it, it kind of brings in that kind of men in blackish seventies paranoid thriller element too. Where this film gets separated from the seventies paranoia, again, the, that kind of corporate thriller, that we've talked about before and the gory genre film that it also needs to be because it's called a Halloween film is right here that we make the Kupfers in, and uh, I, I think is it Marge or the, the other sort of, you know, small town buyer, whatever these people are cannon fodder and we make them unlikable precisely as we've talked so that we can get him, get on board when they have these horrific deaths. Whereas if this was an Alan Pacula film, you would make these characters sympathetic and they would be the small business owners getting swallowed up by the conglomerates. Marge does say the thing about how, well, like before they got all big, we used to be able to get our stuff done on time. And now I have to come up here myself and do it because I just don't trust them to pay attention to me. Like there's a version where these people are sympathetic and not unpleasant cannon fodder that we look forward to seeing their child devoured by bugs. <laughs> by insects, by, yeah. By, <laughs> um, that's, again, that's where, I, that's where I look at this and go, there's a good movie in here, but the good movie likes the cuppers, it likes their chief salesman, it doesn't you know, belittle him so that he can get killed by the evil corporation, uh, much to our amusement. Yeah, but Vic, I don't know. I mean, you're saying like that it's, it's, it's inherently, it makes it a bad movie that we have these kind of broad, comedically broad, stereotypical characters who are cannon fodder, like that's inherently bad. Like there's there's no way that that can be justified as, you know, I said earlier in the spirit of just like, well, we're going to watch people die, but we want this movie to be fun. You know, we're not trying to traumatize the audience. I mean, how do you reconcile those two uh, approaches where this is like – this movie knows what it is. It's actually not trying to be all the president's men. Well, but that's, <laughs> but I think I, I I disagree. I think that it is. I mean, that's a lot of what Emily's talked about is that there are layers to this. There there is subtext to this that is interesting, and in that if you explored it to its limit, would make this to a, a, a much better movie. But they don't. Instead, they pull back and and make it more of a gory horror film. Now, there's again, there's a world where we enjoy it on that level. I don't know. I, there's a more interesting movie to be made here, and I feel like they they veered away from it again. When you talk about Tommy Lee Wallace's rewrite to add more gore, like any movie, don't you like this movie better if you if these people are sympathetic, if their deaths mean something to you? 
Uh, I just am reminding you, Vic, that this movie is called Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. That's not an excuse, John. You always always have an obligation to make a good movie, whatever movie you're making. Come on. I I agree with that. I agree with that. But I'm just saying... Screenwriter of Devil's Past. (laughs) Well, you you definitely take everything you write very seriously, and I respect that. But what I'm saying here is that this is like a goofy, fluffy Hollywood horror movie it's not a you know stinging indictment of consumerism yeah there should be there are some ideas in here i mean like gremlins 2 is a pretty good example of a movie that manages to be pretty um cutting and you know serious about its satire while being like a ridiculous hulk hogan is in the movie for god's sake um you know light kids kids horror and yes, that's probably a better movie than this on, on an objective level just because of, you know, the seriousness of its aspirations. But I just I, I disagree with the idea that that we need to like there's something inherently good about having all of characters who are, are miserable and suffer and die horrible deaths that that's just inherently better. I, I actually think there's if you're going to have a movie that has a big body count I'm personally, and you know, we've seen this with the Friday movies. I'm personally fine with making them unctuous and and you know, kind of cartoony if we're going to kill them off. Because honestly, I don't need to grapple with the fact that you know, good human beings are are dying horrible deaths every time I see a movie. John, you sound to me like another liberal Hollywood elite who just (laughs) (laughs) wants to see them killed on screen. It's a fun film, and I think that the characters being that much of just a character makes it more fun. I was watching this uh, the other day with my boyfriend and my roommate. They just liked the shorthand of finding this character and saying, oh, well, this is the niche that character's in. And it was a real quick, easy way for the audience to get it without having to spend so much time on a backstory and complex emotions nobody cares i'm gonna say i didn't care when maleficent gave me the backstory of maleficent i don't need all that i just want to say here's the character it's this archetype whatever let's move on to to the more fun parts of the film you almost use the word and i I think caricature is is apt Mm -hmm. in this situation i think that what vic is kind of putting his finger on which did jingle with me as well, but I kind of forgave it, I think, a little bit more, is the idea that you're bringing in elements of more serious types of movies, and then you have, uh, you know, the appearance of characters like Buddy and Betty Kupfer. They look yeah, like they're so, in a vacation movie, don't they? Right, exactly. And so <laughs> it's Randy weird. It was not available. Yeah, it, it's it's weird to have... Elements of this that feel like uh, like a parallax view, or uh, you know, who, who's the guy who wrote stuff for Wise and Rosemary's Baby, uh, Irvin? Iron Eleven. Iron, Iron Eleven. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So it feels like a very grounded, very creepy, very you know, somewhat high-minded thing. And then you have these goofy Randy Quaidish type characters show up, and it jangles. But again, yeah, like the, even though this, this isn't a slasher movie technically, this is a Halloween yeah. film, and you know, like yeah. the the amazing nineteen seventy seven invasion of the Body Snatchers is like yeah. that is truly a brilliant film. I, I this agree. is yeah. not that, but that's isn't that okay? The remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, I think, informs this movie in several ways too. I, one thing that I want to point out is the film does an 
excellent job of making the Silver Shamrock commercial ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's The characters are constantly running into it. And as soon as they arrive in the town, you're always seeing the, the assassin guys, the men in black. They're all over the place, and they're just kind of standing there and staring. But almost like the Abel Ferreira uh, body snatchers, they stand out only because they're similarly dressed, but everyone is still staring at the one car that isn't Cochran's in this entire town, apparently. Because <laughs> like, a strange car moves into town, and everybody has to look out the window and stare at it. Yes, one of the other homages to the first film is there is when Cochran's car, there's a couple instances, not just, I mean, there's obviously in the opening when uh, Grimbridge, the senior, is uh, trying to hide from them or whatever, but that notion of the slow-moving car moving by sort of in the background, uh, they do that with Cochran's car when they first get to town here, and that was one of the things I noted was it it reminded me of, you know, it, it, it we're told it's Cochran in the car, but it could as well be Michael Myers for the way they, the, the, something they expect us to react to that. Even if it's not a Michael Myers Halloween movie, it's still a Halloween movie. Uh, it's, I had the same thought, drunk. Vic, when, uh, yeah. w- even from the, the first time we see the people in the car, um, you know, following Grimbridge, it, it feels very reminiscent of Michael cruising around Haddonfield in the first film. And I think it's very much the same with the, uh, the automaton sort of, stepping into frame that is very much meant to be the the jump scare the things that's supposed to get the 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 suspense out of us is these moments of these you know men in black sort of stepping into camera and realizing that they're watching our hair our heroes and heroines and whatever and what occurs to me is that the failure is that when Michael Myers does it in Halloween, and even in Halloween 2, we know that it's Michael Myers. We've had Donald Pleasance talking him up as the embodiment of pure evil, whereas it's, so it's, it's not just the image of a still emotionless form standing across a third of the frame and watching people you know, go about their, their, their lives. There has to be some backstory filled in that makes that image effective. And it, so it just, it's one of those things where I thought, you know, I feel like people learned the wrong lessons from Halloween uh, and, and then tried to apply them to this film, both, again, both in the slow-moving car where it's, oh, it's Cochran the car, or when people are walking around and there's just, there's a creepy guy standing there filling half the screen and going, you know, it works when it's Michael Myers, but it doesn't work when it's an automaton in a suit. I don't know. I, did you guys feel that way? I would disagree. I think that as a movie-going audience, even at that time in 1982, the idea of someone stopping and staring is is creepy, and we know that trope, and we know that it's supposed to be creepy. So I don't think that they have to give us another reason within this particular film for that. Emily, you're absolutely my nemesis on this podcast now, and I <laughs> everybody's arguing with Vic tonight. <laughs> yeah. When they first show up in town, and this is pure conjecture. We get an extreme wide shot, the purpose of which is mostly to uh, show the audience one of the cameras that overlooks the entire town. But within this shot, uh, you guys may have noticed that there's a church. Now, I wonder if Cochrane's control of this town extends to their religious practices. Is there a Lovecraftian element to this? Is everyone in this town part of an evil druid cult a la uh, Children of the Corn or something along those lines? Well, I want to throw that one to Vic because he's a big fan of In the Mouth of Madness, a John Carpenter film that deals very similarly with uh, 
those type of issues and features a church pretty prominently. Vic, were you reminded of that movie at all? And do you think that this is any in any way analogous as as far as the Lovecraft connection? My knee-jerk reaction was not at all. I But I guess anytime you're in a small town where everyone seems to be, I mean, again, you're worshiping a, a, a factory or a toy maker or anything. Uh, I suppose there's a Lovecraftian connection to it. Carpenter, obviously a fan. Um, so, so I wouldn't rule it out, but that wasn't the first place I went with it. The appearance of that church in the wide shot just made my gears start to turn, uh, so to speak. No uh, cause, yeah, exactly. Because mm-hmm. I was also, you know, because when Chalice runs into the the local bum, and it's a small enough town that the town has one, and, you know, the local drunk, uh, I should say, it reminded me of, uh, what was the character's name? F from something or other from uh, uh, Shadows Over Innsmouth, where, where the protagonist gets a lot of exposition because there's the one drunk guy who's too much of a drunk to to care anymore. And actually get silenced, just like in Shadow Over Innsmouth. Well, or Friday the 13th, actually, which might be the, uh, the more direct connection. I would say Shadow is, is more analogous in terms of the setup. because you know, Christ, just, why does everybody hate me on this podcast? Today? I don't hate you. I just, <laughs> I, I, I just think that there, there's no cult of, of Jason Voorhees in, in Crystal Lake. Uh, although I, I think that would make a real Jim Cracker of a movie too, but you know. I just wonder how that town drunk made it as long as he did to be able to have that uh, interaction with Chalice, because by that point he's just spouting everywhere that he wants to burn down the factory and this and that. <laughs> yeah. The last Halloween, the last Halloween. Yeah, I, I, I think that he he's lasted long enough because Cochran wasn't going to murder a few hundred, a few million people. Or, uh, any other year and he's uh you know enough of a local guy that has his ear to the ground he has for whatever reason he has a sense of what's coming and that's why he has to be silenced yeah i was eye rolling there i have to say speaking of extremely broad characters you mm-hmm. know, uh, you know i think that's even, worth noting like yeah, just the general quality of crazy. acting in the in the supporting cast is very low in this film, and <laughs> I think that's partially why like Ebert singled out uh, the performance of our our female lead here. I mean, I don't I don't think she was terrible, but I wasn't walking away from this movie being like, "Wow, what a strong performance." Just to do a little homework before he did this, I I read what he had written, and I don't think he was paying attention to the movie. <laughs> when I think this is one of those reviews that he wrote, he got there late. He wasn't really paying attention to the movie. Like as you're reading the review, you're just like, "Did we watch the same film?" Because he makes a couple of errors in terms of talking about the plot, because he specifically mentions that the beginning of Halloween three starts with the ending of Halloween 2 with the burning of a guy. And it's like, no, that was Michael Myers, and this is a completely different guy. What, what are you talking about, man? Oh, you know, yeah, that's weird. Maybe he uh, was on the sauce in 1982. I don't know. <laughs> Possibly. Watching this on the computer while we're doing this, uh, Amazon helpfully tells you it has pop-ups of the uh, listings for the characters who are in the scene. So right now it's telling me Jamie Lee Curtis telephone operator uh, because, you know, I don't, I'm sure you guys saw that she does some voice work in this film. Uh, yeah. She, she's also the, the voice of the, the curfew. Right. Right. And that's actually why that should be what it's telling me she's doing because that's what she's doing in the scene that I'm watching. But it's just kind of weird to see 
you know, all these various, um, very, very obscure actors information pop up, you know, all over my screen whenever I, I pause it. Um, right. but yeah, it, it's kind of a amusing thing that she, she comes back in this capacity. Yeah. So they get to the town. We should probably advance the story a little bit here. Um, <laughs> and, I, 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 let's just do the entire two and a half hours about just the first act of this movie oh um mike don't we do that every other podcast <laughs> uh, yeah, <that's> <laughs> so it, move, yeah, yeah move, moving on. right along they, they, they get some gas and they get the uh motel and uh uh the the guy in here looks uh, oh, oh, ebert also mentions that he thinks that the wardrobe of this guy is meant to evoke Henry Fonda and I'm Golden Pond, which is the most <laughs> bizarre fucking thought. Dude, sort of. He's wearing you know, a sweater. I've seen that movie, <laughs> and I, I can say I, I understand why he would say that in that mm-hmm. year, you know, because that was a big movie that got a lot of Oscar nominations, but yeah. random. Anyway, yeah, they uh, they encounter this very uh, folksy motel guy who walks them through their room with uh, you know the kind of loving attention that cheap motel operators always give to their their guests. Or, or that podcasters give to bad movies. Yeah, <laughs> uh, good point. <laughs> yeah, we installed some new pipes. Yeah, uh, I, I do like that because because it's Irish land, and this guy is like uh, you know Mickey McBrogue. They crank up the Irish to 11. And then uh, Tom Atkins gets introduced to uh, the, the kooky family when he almost gets biffed by a flying bicycle. <laughs> That's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the guys over the top, the, the wife, Betty, in, in her purple jumper, and curlers in her hair on top. It's like every bad idea just thrown, all, just piled on top of these characters. Like Again, I keep stacking. thinking of part five of Friday the 13th. You know yeah. how super broad those characters are? Like it, it yeah. almost looks like the, the, the woman who makes the soup and has her son on the motorcycle, the dim-witted son. And... The other woman, too. What's her, what's her character's name? She strikes me as a little more professional. She's very brusque. She's not, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Marge. Uh, the kind of name that is given the characters when they're over the age of 40. And <laughs> yeah, you, you never meet Marge at sixteen, right? Large Marge from uh, Pee Wee Herman's Big Adventure. Yeah, she's nearly as broad as the, as the others, but the actress makes a good go of it. Like it's a yeah. good, it's a it's a good performance. I, you know, I feel like she really wanted to go like drink a bottle of wine with Ellie, and you know, they could they could sort of swap stories or something. Like I. I I actually appreciate her as slightly more than a caricature, especially compared to uh, Betty and Buddy, Buddy. Cupper. Yeah, and actually I felt that her her fate was actually, Vic, you were talking about, you know, well, do you feel anything or is it sad or disturbing? I, I actually thought it, it is quite disturbing the way that character meets her end. I mean, she's just messing around with <laughs> the label on a on a Halloween mask. <laughs> yeah, if you want to talk about the term undeserved misfortune, right. it, let's poke at this weird label on the back of a Halloween mask. She Nothing about her words de- or deeds deserve a laser beam to the face and then crickets crawling out of her skull. Now, to no. be fair, well, that, that, that's usually true of almost any circumstance. Person, but, <laughs> <That's true. laughs> but, I mean, I do question why she's, like, poking at this circuit board. Like, what, what do you... Th- I mean, I know you don't think that's going to happen, but what what benefit is there in like jamming like uh, you know a piece of metal into a circuit board? 
before that happens, Jamie Lee Curtis announces to the town that it's time for the curfew. And this is a curfew that Dr. Chalice immediately ignores because he goes straight <laughs> he goes straight out to the liquor store. And uh, apparently the liquor store ignores a curfew as well because he was able to buy this bottle. But it does make me laugh that, okay, we're settled in. Time to go get some booze. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Road beers are gone. Time to get a bite. Yeah, he killed the six-pack. Yeah, this guy is a man after my own heart. He runs into uh, the hobo exposition guy. Right, yeah, who's who's terrible. I mean, this is yeah. not, not a well-written or well-acted character. Um, yeah, and he, is, he just gets dude. killed like 30 seconds after their conversation. <laughs> well, uh, he, he, he talked too much. It's just so funny that it times out that way. I do like that he's cornered, and then they just yank his head right off his shoulders. I, I think it's mm-hmm. actually a really cool death. I thought they, they bypassed another good eye gouging, which is really what I root for in any situation. You want right. more eye trauma, don't you, Vic? There can't be an eye gouging, because he didn't see too much. He was talking, so they ripped out, you know, mm-hmm. mouth from the uh, lungs and, and all that. Right. I could have used a Did good like see? tongue being pulled out. Sure. Yeah, that would have been better. Ah, that's a good idea, yeah. Uh, yeah, well... Uh, if we had a time machine, we could only jump back into time and go to set and make that suggestion. Another well, I feel like when we when we do a remake of this, because this uh, to me this film deserves a remake more than Halloween deserve like the first Halloween deserves a remake. Let's start will... remaking films like this that have that bone structure but could really be better. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. you make this movie with Monsanto instead of Silver Samrock, you've got a movie. Yeah, dude. By the way, Absolutely the guy agree. that rips off the drunk uh, indigent dude's head. I thought for a second, I'm like, oh, is this an early Anthony Hopkins role? Hmm. <laughs> Just the kind of like the the way his face looks in this in this shot and the fact that Anthony Hopkins around this time like would just pop up in weird small roles in movies. Yeah. Well, uh, he, uh, they they also underlight him very nicely too. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, uh, and of course, right after that, we get some cheesecake out of Ellie who gets out of the shower. Everybody is uh, just kind of settling in for the evening. What is the book that Marge is reading? Can you say us? I tried to look at that when she was doing it because I thought, oh, this must be obviously they're alluding to, you know, it's going to be Jonathan Livingston Seagull or something. But Right. Yeah, I can only read the author's name. I, I like the performance from the uh, lab tech as well. Uh, she's, she's very grounded. And uh, she's, mm. she seems like she would be funny. She seems smart. She has a sense of humor. She's only given like these kind of broad strokey scenes, but I don't know. I, I think she sells it. What do we gain from the lab tech? What oh, information in do we kind of point to that? That's a good uh, Nothing. Yeah, I, because <laughs> he finds out through her that they're robots, but then he finds that out anyways from more uh, direct uh, encounters with them. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. That he's an alcoholic from her, but we knew that from everything else that he did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. Uh, Dr. Chalice returns with his booze. Uh, Ellie has already put on some lingerie for him, and uh, they, they get into uh, some steamy McSteaminess. Yeah. They check the sex scene box. I do think it's funny that this um, the lab tech woman, like, her entire shooting day, she could do her, like, in one day, she could do her entire part. She doesn't even stand up, you know? Like, right. her, yeah. we just cut back to her, like, over and over and over, and nobody even makes a choice, like, well, maybe she's, like, in another room. Maybe she's she... eating a sandwich, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she's just always sitting there whenever he calls. Yeah. 
<laughs> just waiting by the phone for her date. Right. That's what she's yeah. doing. Right, yeah, because she does elicit a dinner out of him at some point at some point in the future. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah the it, sexual it, politics it, of that relationship, you know, you know who's in charge there, and it's Dr. Chalice. There's a fatal attraction movie to be had. Like if only he right. had suffered this fate, like he just would have gotten back and she would have kidnapped his children and boiled his rabbit. Like <laughs> All while he's dodging weirdos in Halloween masks and robots. So they play the saxophone. They have their sex scene. We can't gloss over the fact that the sex scene mostly consists of him sucking on her nipple. Which, I have to say, I mean, that's that's a specific choice to feature in a uh, in a sex scene. He just well, he, he's, goes to town. He's giving her the power of the mustache. That's what it is. <laughs> he's giving her her nipple mustache ride. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure that feels fantastic. <laughs> just what you want. I'm sure if you drove around and looked under some bridges tonight, you could. Uh... <laughs> so, so Marge gets uh, bored with the Carlos Castaneda book. She decides to dick around with the uh, the little thing, and it shoots her in the mouth with a laser. Uh, a laser. The way that that is staged, it it happens really, really quick, and but mm-hmm. there is a degree of violence. You, you flinch because it's completely unexpected. Yeah. It comes completely out of nowhere. And then when we cut back to her, uh, her face is ruined in a extraordinarily horrible way. Yeah. And then on yeah. top of that, like a, a giant crit. It looks like a. I mean, it's it's an insect. I'm not sure if it's cricket though. It's it's almost like a a, a camel spider or something. It's mm-hmm. it's this weird fucking bug that crawls out of a ruined mouth. It's striking shit, man. It's oh, really yeah. good. Yeah, definitely. This is a movie that I think if I had seen it at like you know seven or eight, I think it would have messed me up a lot more than yeah. it should because like this was the kind of thing that would have just destroyed me as a kid, just the way I was wired. You know, just the unbelievable, like, sudden horribleness of, of something like that. Like, the she's still alive for, like, a good bit of this. It's, it's, it's ghastly is the word that comes to mind. It's unsettlingly. She's suffering. It's horrible. Yeah. Her, yeah, her mouth really is. is completely, uh, like, ripped open. Everything below the nose. And her teeth are just sticking out. Her eyes are it's totally bloodshot. Horrible. Yeah, this God, is a weird yeah. bug, you're right, that comes out. It's almost like yeah. a an, a bee or something, you know, like without wings. Yeah. I, uh, I have no idea what that bug is. But, yeah, the, what happens to her lips is exactly what happens when Bugs Punny puts his finger into Elmer Fudd's shotgun, and he pulls the trigger anyways, and it spreads out like that, like a, like a metal flower. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty horrifying, man. Yeah, and, and again, then, uh, I don't uh, think this is exactly like nobody's winning uh, Oscars for the the makeup, but like it, it's mind, still, yeah, yeah it, it packs a it punch. Works. What's wonderful too is apparently when one of these things activates, uh, an alarm goes off at Cochrane Incorporated or uh, Silver Shamrock Incorporated because the uh, the guys put on lab coats <laughs> and they show up in force along with Mister Cochrane. Dr. Chalice blesses us with his, his, his powerful man ass as he uh, is. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, he comes out and he starts like, I'm a doctor. And, you know, they're, they're not going to let him sure. horn in on this. And they're all like, oh, she'll yeah. get the best care. She'll be fine. And they take her away in, in a van. And um, yeah. it's, it's one of those kind of funny situations where 
he's not they're 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 blowing their cover a little bit here with yeah. the amount of interest that they're showing in this situation. Extraordinarily so. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I am a doctor. <laughs> oh, I mean, I mean, a toy, toy, toy seller guy. I mean, I, I'm moonlight and, uh, as a doctor. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and of course, who's playing Doctor Cochran? But Dan O'Hurley, who would go on just uh, three years later, or no, uh, five years. Yeah, to play the old man in RoboCop. I have to say, I like his performance in this even better. Because it's just yeah. a little more. If this guy was the old man in RoboCop, I think Dick Jones mm-hmm. would be watching his ass a little bit more. And I guess maybe that's kind of the idea of RoboCop is that maybe he used to be more like this. You know, he was yeah. he was more of a badass, but he's lost his edge, and Dick Jones is is now the you know the alpha. You know, he's a sweet old man. <laughs> we used to call him funny names. Iron, Iron butt. butt. <laughs> But there was always respect. <laughs> <laughs> All right, tangent. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, yeah, so uh, uh, Doctor Chalice uh, again further blows his cover by getting on the phone with the lab tech, not knowing that his room has been bugged with a microphone approximately the size of the microphone that Orson Welles used to record War of the Worlds. <laughs> this is the most gigantic room bug ever created. But it goes completely under. Well, no, isn't he on the office phone? Like, he has to go... Yeah. yeah, he doesn't even have a phone in his room back then. You have to go, like, just use the phone in the lobby of the motel. Which seems like the worst real character decision to make there when you're in a town that everybody seems fishy, everybody seems in on it. I'm just going to start talking about that just out in the open on a phone. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I'm sure Dr. Chalice is a um, brilliant ER doctor and a uh, wonderful lover of women, but as an investigative reporter type guy and an undercover dude, giving him a one on the 10 scale. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he, he's definitely not going to become a PI after this. No. Experience. <laughs> <laughs> it would be funny to see the the, P, the the 80s PI show starring this character. But it's, it's funny like because a... obviously the actor, you know, would play dozens of PIs and cops in his career. Then they go uh, to the factory the next day uh, under the ostensible story that they're there to pick up uh, her father's order. Yes, and that's they how take the a tour. Their, yeah, that's how they finagle their way into the, the inner workings of Silver Shamrock Incorporated. Right, right. Which is true. Dad never picked it up. They're sort of running parallel to Buddy and his family uh, taking the tour, and we see uh, you know, various uh, employees uh, that are, I would say they're probably real human beings, clearly. Very real human beings working <laughs> in this factory. Very carbon-based. Um, <laughs> they were, you know, they're mammals. They weren't uh, birthed um, in a factory. Again, there are good ideas here. There's stuff that can be worked with. But the whole notion that they get roped into the tour with Buddy and his wife and family are kind of silly. The final processing room is like the don't go in this door right here. <laughs> it's so on the nose. And then, I mean, again, then her father's car shows up. She immediately forgets every pretense she's had in here at the sight of, like, you know, two-thirds of the rear end of a station wagon. And so, again, we're treated to, you know, 14 more still shots of clockwork men filling half the frame who then literally just, like, come into the frame. Like, these people, they kill people with such impunity. And yet when these people immediately betray themselves as... 
you know, undercover reporters who know who they are. Like Cochran knows who they are at this point. He's still, everybody's just doing this dance. And so then they block her from getting in the car. And then, and then they sort of get to go back to their hotel room just to draw out the suspense for another 40 minutes. I, I find it all pretty silly. On this one, I'm very much on the same page. Uh, she sees the father's car and with zero subtlety, immediately gives the game away. But it doesn't matter because Dr. Chalice has already thoroughly given the game away. They're, they're the shittiest undercover investigators well, ever. It's- wait, and did you notice, too, that when she runs the car, Chalice just, like, stands there. He's like, well, she's fucked. (laughs) (laughs) Like, if they were going to kill her, like, she was going to be dead, and he's just hanging back, which is great, because that's what I want from Tom Atkins. Like, that is Tom Atkins in uh, Night of the Creeps. Right. Like, I I buy him as a emotionally uninvested, uh, you know, distant character. I don't buy him as somebody who gives a shit about this girl. So that's one of the few moments where I was like, well, that's cool. Yeah, I don't know what went on with her. I just met her, like... He's a cynical dude, uh, generally, Tom Atkins. Yeah. Uh, While they take their tour and throughout the rest of the movie, I was struck by how this factory, like, everything is handmade. Like, workers are doing everything with their hands. There's not even a machine, let alone a robot, you know, like it's not even industrial. It's people pouring stuff into molds and, you know, every single function that's happening in this factory are people carrying stuff around and placing things and wheeling carts. And like it's a completely old, oldest of schools factory. Uh, yeah, and- especially given the fact that the guy who owns and runs this factory has access to automatons mm-hmm. but does not use them in the factory. But they're wide out in the open. There's two or three of them hanging around the garage to form a phalanx around the car when Ellie dashes to it. And obviously the people who live in this town are very aware of these dudes who work for Cochran. But he he could literally automate the mask making process, but chooses instead to employ the town. I think that for perhaps for morale reasons to keep them on his side or to maintain the pretense that it's just a oh just lovable old man Cochran and his this is funny toy making and mask making he just wants to bring joy to the hearts of children all over America and look at all these smiling workers who will clap on command when he introduces buddy this is our top salesman yay top salesman yay yeah, like automatons are for security and death only, not for making masks or sex. Clear <laughs> line. I would say that Ellie's character is consistent, even though her her many choices don't make a lot of sense to me. That is consistent throughout her character. She is very concerned with her father, and yet just feels to, like, oh, let's just go have sex. Nothing else going on tonight. You know, she completely abandons it until morning. And I find that a weird decision. I find uh, going in and basically being herself when she's trying to be stealthy and, and look into things, another very questionable decision. So her running up to that car and just going after it, to me, that's consistent writing. Sure. She's an amateur, yeah. right? They're both amateurs. Yeah. There's amateur and then there's... You know, the man who was mysteriously murdered, who I think is connected very strongly to this town and your factory, I'm that guy's daughter, and I'd like to pick up his, and I'm here to pick up his order of masks. That's the only reason that I am here. 
Oh, oh no, it's his car. Why is it? And, and how dopey is it to have that fucking car out there too? Uh, I, I love that that Cochran just kind of makes a joke about it and again gives them an evil look. Trade secrets, Mike. Trade secrets. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah. It's like. <laughs> I will justify this from Cochran's perspective in that he's in complete control and he doesn't really believe that these two are going to pose any real threat to the plan that's going to go off, you know, tomorrow. And, you know, maybe he's, he's had situations like this happen many times over the years. So I I feel like he's somewhat justified in not taking these two too seriously considering how, uh, amateurish and ineffectual of opponents they they really are i think he might be amusing himself actually yeah. uh and, and might not be instantly murdering them because uh he wants to have someone to give his villain speech to because, oh yeah uh, you know yeah. it's like he, a james bond movie him, so, it's yeah. like a james bond movie yeah yeah he, he, very much so i we, we have the super villain he's got his master plan he gets a hold of the good guy and monologues to uh, have someone to talk to because, you know, he can't tell his employees because he's trying to keep this whole thing secret. And the only other people who know it are automatons and they're not scintillating conversationalists. I, I think, uh, yeah, the one and only reason that he doesn't instantly murder these two is because he likes the idea. It, yeah, you're right. He's completely in control. He has no fear of them in any way, shape, or form. It will amuse himself to describe the situation to Dr. Jealous. Yeah, we get to Wait, a moment. Je- uh, what, it is, what it is, is you have the power? Okay, yeah, of course. You know my plan. Go off. And then basically taking them right back in, letting uh, them think that they are in control for a moment, and then pulling that out from under them. The practical jokester. Ah, uh, yes. Yes. Well, he, uh, he... There is a moment where he realizes, oh, shit, yeah, I mean, this guy has escaped, and... You know, I might he, – he's more just like floored when the tables actually turn and Chalice proves himself to be a, a genuine threat to, to the plan. And, yeah, it's hubris, it's arrogance, it's whatever. But I also kind of like that he's kind of one of those old-timey villains who's – you know, he's not a thug. He, he kind of has this sort of – I wouldn't – you know, even dapper attitude where – and look where he's kind of like a sophisticated – villain and he enjoys like being gentlemanly about it rather than just you know off with their heads kind of a right kind of a guy yeah so uh he captures uh or he has uh dr chalice captured uh along with ellie separately both of them extraordinarily easily <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh dr chalice is unable to withstand the power of the uh, automaton assassins they do the whole thing where they strap him down uh they also strap ellie down to a hospital bed it looks like do you think that he needs to do that to like kind of maintain a stillness of a subject in order to recreate an automaton version of them. Is that why he kind of straps her to that bed in that weird laboratory? My my theory on that is that that's Uh already the automaton because he, he's using her to lure uh, chalice in. Uh And so I think from the minute we see her strapped to that thing, she's the automaton. Mm -hmm. That's just my guess. 
I wonder if the models of the assassins aren't based off of other people who have caused him trouble in the past. Mm. If someone gives him a hard time, then he creates a little automaton version of you. Because, you know, they don't all look the same. They're different actors or different people. Several dozen of them. I mean, it's not like they're, they're stormtroopers or anything, you know. Interesting. It could be. Yeah. By the way, I just saw that the guy that I thought was Anthony Hopkins was actually Dick Warlock. So... That is Dick Warlock. Okay. I knew it was one of them, but yeah, okay. Interesting. So, uh, yeah, so Cochran uh, captures Dr. Chalice, uh, leads him around the facility so I can give the villain speech. And the motivation behind this entire thing is, from what I can gather, that he is super druid wizard guy. And he wants to bring back those days when people were super scared of Halloween. That he doesn't want it to be a Hallmark holiday anymore that involves like candy and TPing people's houses. He wants it to be like an actual a source of power and fear. I like the fact that he's not trying to summon anything. Oh, if I murder X number of children with these masks, then I can summon our Dark Lord. Right. It's not opening a gateway or, you know, becoming yeah. the, the king of the world or anything like that. It's, it's almost like a symbolic, almost like a terrorism kind of a thing where he yeah. just wants to strike fear into everyone's hearts and say, hey, look, this shit is still real. You need to be afraid. His master plan is kind of this interesting congruence of fear of computers, fear of Halloween, fear of subliminal messaging and advertising, fear of corporations. Uh, There's a lot of kind of cool stuff going on. Well, I like that it's so many things that it becomes murky and bigger and, you know, seems like kind of hard to fully understand and fathom. It's not simple. Like, yeah, it's it's drawing on so many things that it becomes a stew where you almost think, oh, well, we're only getting like a little bit of a bigger picture, which is intriguing. This Halloween movie actually focuses on Halloween and actually being Halloween. I think the other one with Michael Myers coming back, he could have come back on April 3rd. (laughs) Right. I don't really necessarily think that it being Halloween was was necessarily the big thing. And in the subsequent sequels, I mean, there's a much larger story that Michael Myers has a larger thing going on, even though most things happen around Halloween. Um, He clearly has a plan going on throughout the year. This one goes in that history behind Halloween and a different fear and celebration of Halloween, which is intriguing to me. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The prior movies were called Halloween and about Halloween. They're, but they're called Halloween, but they're not about Halloween. This movie is actually called Halloween and about Halloween, just as an idea behind what the holiday means, where it comes from. I, I think that would have been cool if it was implied that if he pulls off casting the spell from this point forward, every Halloween is going to be actual demons and dark magic. And Michael Myers is going to be the least of your fucking worries on October 31st. That's a shame of, I feel like if they would have been able to do the anthology that they wanted to, I think they could have explored in future films different aspects of Halloween, different parts of the mythology coming into play. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that would have been, to me, a much more interesting series than uh, what comes on later down the line. Yeah, well, That's the great agreed. tragedy of the box office, you know? I mean, the, the fact that everyone concluded from this movie, oh, well, that was a bad idea. You know, and you just you have to wonder, <laughs> yeah. yeah, what might have been as genre people. We all love anthologies and we all love the freedom of being able to do something completely different from movie to movie. And and that's actually one of the sad differences 
between this franchise and Friday the 13th, whereas even as it gets ridiculous, Friday the 13th makes an active effort to completely change what they're doing movie to movie by about, you know, movie six. We have a psychic girl, we have, you know, body swapping, we have he goes to space, and, you know, it just gets crazy, and Halloween really gets pigeonholed into a slasher, except for this film. I mean, this is the juncture where they could have gone a different way. I think it was because of the pushback on this film that the rest of them become very uh, pigeonholed, as you say. You know, they, they don't go in more gonzo directions like Friday the 13th because they did try to go the color outside the lines with this movie, and everyone was just like, no. If you look at uh, Michael Doherty's Trick or Treat, you can get an idea of some of the places they might have gone with this. Another anthology film centered around Halloween and all the potential that's around it. It's a great movie that probably, again, you're looking in there at three different stories that could have been explored in greater detail. I agree. There's a place this could have gone that was more interesting than where it went. What do you think about this scene with the family and the mask killing the kid? Did that move the needle for you at all? Yes, it's one of the stronger scenes in the movie, more even than Friday the 13th, more even than the first Halloween. This movie has a willingness to fucking kill kids in horrific ways. That's there's something to be said for that. Like that is fucked up. Like it's seriously it's a messed up scene and it's only because I want to see Buddy Cupfer get, you know, killed by a rattlesnake. <laughs> that you know, you know, they make the kid unpleasant. They make the the family unpleasant. Whatever. So there's sort of a, again, you have a a Schadenfreude. Sort of, you want to see these people die or whatever. It's not something you would see in a typical horror film. Certainly in a slasher film, Tommy and what's her face get away fine in Halloween because we don't we don't kill kids. You know, Hitchcock taught us they right. get away. And here it's like, oh, no, we're going to we're going to kill the kids and we're going to kill a lot of kids. That montage where we see kids with the masks all over the country. One of my favorite aspects of that scene is not only the absolutely bonkers way that these characters meet their demise, but also the fact that Cochran doesn't strap them to chairs and put masks on their head and stick them in front of a TV. No. He leads them under a pretense, or has them led under a pretense, into a room that is, even though the walls and the door and the ceiling are steel, has been dressed to look like an average American living room. Why take that extra step, if only, I guess, to to watch what's going to happen in the natural habitat of its victims? Because it doesn't force them like POWs to watch the Silver Shamrock thing. It it puts them in a living room scenario where the kid willingly puts the mask on and goes, oh boy, the Silver Shamrock thing is on. Under the pretense that they're going to look at new promotional material, (laughs) which is hilarious to me. I think it has a weird connection to, at that time, what you would see in sort of bomb shelters. You think about the hills have eyes. You know, this nuclear world where there all of a sudden you'd seen images of things that looked like normal American homes, but were in fact encased in steel and were in fact underground uh, and sort of prisons that were just dressed up. And I wonder how much of that imagery was just on the minds of people in 1982. 
we're going to watch all of these Halloween movies, and I've seen, you know, all but, like, the one with Busta Rhymes in it, but I'm going to be so bold as to say this is the most disturbing scene in any of them, and it's more disturbing than any scene in any Friday the 13th film. I think pound for pound, if you really look at this scene, and even just the shot of this kid lying on the floor with his eyes staring out of the hole in the mask and tufts of hair poking out of this, like, ruined, melted mask. And he just, he honestly, he kind of looks like Jason under that mask. It is wrong and disturbing on a level that, you know, getting a uh, something jammed through your a teenager's head in a garage when she's, you know, yelling for her boyfriend or, yeah. you know, it just doesn't have. Like, this is really, really, really dark. <laughs> Not only does it fit the holiday... But it also gives us a reason to uh, let the imagination go because all we know, we just watch the surface of it yeah. writhe and then, and then poisonous snakes come yeah. out from underneath it. It's like, oh what the God. fuck? I will say that if they had wanted to truly make a franchise about evil druids doing evil druid shit, if this is how evil druids kill you, damn it's pure nightmare fuel, I think. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, this, it, it, this is like when you were talking about uh, Prince of Darkness earlier, Vic. Like, yeah, this is a scene right out of Prince of Darkness. In, in terms of the climax, I think it's drawing a little bit more of a straight line to the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers. The idea that our hero is up on a catwalk and he pours some stuff down on top of the people below and that make some malfunction. It's kind of a weird setup, but within the magic of it, it kind of works. Why do they have all those extra shamrock things? I mean, it's obviously takes a lot of effort to get those things going. What did they plan on doing with them? Because their big plan is happening on that very night. I think that they would not have them so close to their main workshop (laughs) or actually not have them at all. You think they would have gotten rid of them all and distributed it out. Yeah, right. Oh, oh, well, the second wave. Yeah, we're we're really going to get people to put these masks on again tomorrow, right? Or next year. Yeah, uh, n- next year, yeah. <laughs> it's like <laughs> 365 days until Halloween and Halloween. <laughs> this isn't a practical joke you can play twice, is it? <laughs> when he's showing the big Stonehenge thing, did did he like replace it with a like a foam one in Stonehenge? How did he get that out? Is he no, the, from you know mm-hmm. uh, Despicable Me here stealing special uh, world wonders here? <laughs> the the movie kind of hand waves it by having Cochrane just kind of go, "Oh, that was a tough job, but we did it. You won't believe what we had to do to get that here." So, yeah, we have the montage of all the trick-or-treaters. Um, Dayton, Ohio, by the way, is where my dad is from. So I, I like that mm. they picked that randomly. And you have apparently kids trick-or-treating in Griffith Park from the angle, um, mm. which I, I thought was kind of funny. The big climax, though, yeah, is this idea that we clearly establish that there's all of these kids all over the country wearing these masks. The movie boils down to... Uh, Tom Atkins on the phone with someone who apparently is, has tremendous power over what's on <laughs> multiple networks at one time. Yeah, I, I understand that the movie is trying to create this beat at the end that's kind of a horror movie twist slash downer. But the entire idea that Tom Atkins can get on the phone from a gas station 
and get someone on who can shut off multiple network <laughs> channels. Third <laughs> one's still on! But he doesn't go over to just turn off the TV for the kid that's right there. Oh, I'm just yeah. saying, I know that you can't save everybody in the world, but also just turn off the one that's right within arm's reach. If nothing yeah, uh, more, you can save that kid. He didn't yeah. seem like a jerk. I don't know. I, I, I know this sounds crazy, and I can't tell you why, but you have to shut off all three major networks right now. Yes, I am a doctor calling from a gas station. If the person on the phone was female, mm. we, he has oh. proven which, with Ellie <laughs> and uh, the the morgue person that he has this power over women. It must it have been a, a dude. Makes complete sense. Oh, well, oh yeah. yeah. I mean, whoever it is, um, they, they do a great job, but I guess like they just didn't have the fourth network, right? Because one channel that they can't turn off uh, for Turtle. whatever reason. They turn off the first two, but not the third. Okay, this so is three. Yeah. Back, in, back in 1982, where if you shut off three channels, then basically all of TV was down. <laughs> in my day job, you, you might not believe this, but we don't pay our bills uh, uh, hosting the Darkest Hour Media podcast. Um, <laughs> but in, in my in my day job, I work for cable network and one of my the things i do is oversee the uh reception desk and so i just want to clarify to anyone listening that if you just call a network and ask us to change our programming under no circumstances will we do it <laughs> we don't care who you are i don't care how many people in your retirement community are upset about a program being moved. Like it doesn't, I don't care if you're a doctor and millions of children are going to die. Like it's a receptionist. I'm not the receptionist, but no, <laughs> but it doesn't matter. Like it's whoever you can call from a pay phone. We don't care. If you reach Vic, he does have the power to completely turn off that network. <laughs> he, he does. He absolutely does. But he won't. This is just one of the many films that continue this gross misrepresentation of how television works. And I object. And I want it on record. I object to this. This is wrong. Stop perpetuating this this fallacy. Well, I, I I'm not sure that the, uh, the the climactic ending of Halloween three, you know, established a, a concept within the public uh, zeitgeist that you can just call the, the TV station responsible, Mike. It's <laughs> I ask the people when they call. I say, why do you think this is going to work? And they say, well, I saw Halloween three. <laughs> kind of per that thought in, in a movie where there is evil druid magic and robots that can drive cars made out of toy parts the one and only thing that truly bumps me in this movie is the idea of a guy getting on the phone and getting tv stations to turn their shit off i'm just like what come on robots okay you stole one of the stonehenge rocks sure oh evil druid magic why not wait what you're calling from like you're doing what Fuck you! Get out of here. It's like so. Stuff. In a in a more general sense, I want to say, having just watched the uh, android kill the morgue lady with a a drill, that I think that the the staging of the kills and the cinematography in this film are really quite good. You know, like overall, when you're judging a, a a silly slasher movie on some level like you know are the kills good are they effective are they disturbing do they kind of make you wince this this film absolutely passes every test in that regard the one thing that really sets this movie apart is every kill 
is weird and gruesome. Yeah. It's a true, uh, like Emily pointed out, nightmare fuel. One of the things that used to make me laugh about some of the Friday the 13th movies is uh, someone turns around and, oh, I'm stabbed, and then just kind of fall down, and then that's it. Like, yeah, like uh, like a cowboy the... getting shot in a bad Western, and you know, from the 50s right. or something. Like, oh, right. and, and you just drop, you know. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and there's nothing like that. Every character who dies in this movie is in a truly horrific manner, and uh, it's one of the things that I most appreciate about this. Exactly. Film. Like, if you're just judging a horror film from, like, the basic merits of, did it disturb you, this, this passes that test for me. Obviously, it's disturbing and it has those things, but for me, what's really important from horror, horror movies are a very communal experience. I think that when you go and watch a horror movie in a theater or with other people, uh, for me, one that does its job is one that affects the audience. Even if that's making the audience laugh or cheer when somebody gets killed or when something happens that's unbelievable or fantastic. That is what, to me, makes this film work really well. Preparing for this podcast, I watched um, Halloween 1, 2, 3 then Curse of Michael Myers, then the fourth one. Huh. and went through this with my boyfriend and my roommate. And this was the film that we really were laughing with, interacting with, and interjecting during the movie. It was a much more interactive experience with an audience and an audience of, of regular people, not just a weirdo like me who loves horror. <laughs> so that is why this film really does something for me, where the other well, ones just don't. Way back in film school, I read a book called Laughing, Screaming, and I forgot the author's name, but his main point was that horror movies and comedies were the two most analogous genres. That They, they, they were both communal. You know, it's a party atmosphere. You're getting a whole room of strangers sitting in the dark to all feel and react in the same way all at the same time, whereas something like the, an action movie, a thriller, is more internal. You're kind of gripping the edge of the seats, but you're not like, fuck! This movie is filled with WTF like, moments. <laughs> we can all yeah, agree on that. Exactly, yeah. So, so Vic, uh, so, as, as the designated hater, like, let's throw it back to you real quick. <laughs> um, like, what do you make of all that? Like, even with that criteria, you still think this film fails? Yes. Uh, I, first off, I just want to say, and I, I genuinely mean this, Emily, you have an amazing roommate and an amazing boyfriend. So just hang on to those people. Keep them in your life. Um, yes, my, my honey bunny has been around for nearly uh, 14 years now. Wow. He's wow. had to watch more than his share of horror movies. Rock that's my wife. I remember my wife left about 15 minutes into Halloween 2, and uh, I did not try to include her on Halloween 3. So there you go. That's good. But uh, no, I my, basically my take on this movie is very simple. The best version of this movie, uh, it has nothing to do with this silly slasher aspects that come with the name Halloween. There's a version of this that is the parallax view meets video drum, right? Mm. There's plenty of what the fuck moments that, that where you just don't have to deal with clockwork men pulling people's heads off or putting drills into people's skulls. Like those are the things that actually take away from the parts of this movie that are interesting to me. I agree that it does go off the reservation in a way that could be entertaining in a so bad it's good, but I'm too devastated by the parts that are good and the ideas. Again, the, the, the notions of corporate overreach driving out the small businesses and the, you know what I mean? The, the, Again, if this company was Monsanto instead of, you know, making Halloween masks, there's a place to go that that 
feels relevant even today instead of dated and silly. Um, and I understand why they did what they did. And again, they were trying to connect this to their earlier parts of the franchise. And again, I think they were just taking the shots and the suspense elements that worked from Halloween and transposing it onto a story where they said, it's got to be on Halloween and it's got to have nothing to do with Michael Myers. And so there can't be any slasher aspect to it. And, you know, go. I, I'm too sad for the, the, the movie that could have been. Again, I tell me if I, if I, if you watch this movie and I say, Parallax View meets uh, uh, video room. You don't yeah. want to see that movie. Like, holy shit, that's amazing, right? Right. If you I, sold I me that, that, if you said that's what this is going to be, you're damn right. I'd be disappointed. Absolutely. I think that the main failing of Halloween Three is the fact that it's called Halloween Three. If they had simply titled this movie All Hallows Eve, then they could have felt more comfortable jettisoning the broader slasher let's let's entertain teenagers on friday night elements made it a more weird and sinister and grounded film and they wouldn't have had the commercial and creative pushback i mean all of us were like mentioned the first time we saw this movie you were like what the fuck and whether you come to love it or not which, which i have you still no matter what you have that pushback on top because it's jaws 3 that has dinosaurs i like the idea of videodrome because like I can get behind what Vic's saying when I think, like, what if this was a David Cronenberg film? And right. I'm like, I'm, you know, creaming my jeans. You know, I'm like, that would be... Yeah. <laughs> so if I had that yeah. kind I, of I, expectation for this, yeah, I, I would be disappointed. You know, you know because yeah. it's not... It, it, it is this kind of... There's a lot of dumbness and dopiness and broadness and amateurism, you know, from on every level of the production. But... There's just enough, like, what I look for, my criteria for a, a cool horror movie that satisfies me as a genre aficionado. Like, this movie does it. It's disturbing as hell in, in, in a lot of ways. It's original. It doesn't, even though it's, like, maybe saddled with slasher film expectations or, you know, sequel and franchise bullshit, this is not a movie that can be predicted. It is... A completely weird and amorphous, almost like an indie or an art film or, you know, a foreign horror film. Like, it doesn't really, even though there's, like, a lot of very traditional story elements, like, at mm -hmm. the end of the day, this is one weird-ass movie. There's nothing like this movie. So, that's why yeah. I like it. I like that when Ellie reveals herself as a robot when they're in the car, he keeps defeating her and then like pieces of her keep coming back. He, he actually has to tussle with her like three times in a row. It, it starts to turn into Evil Dead 2 yeah. for a minute there when just her arm by itself grabs him. In that moment, I didn't know if I should be laughing or scared because it is like that, that relentlessness of the robot coming after him. I, you know, A, this revelation, and then B, it's like, I, I, yeah, she's really coming after him uh, in this very Terminator-esque, mindless way. But at the same time, it, it goes on for long enough that I, you know, I started to laugh a little bit, too. It feels anyway. a little bit like um, also the 1977 uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, where you know, like, there's sort of the sadness of, even though we don't know exactly where she died, like we know mm -hmm. the real her died. 
Yeah, I, I like that they don't explain that. And it doesn't even feel like a hand wave, just a mystery. We're, we're just never told what actually happens to the real Ellie. And uh, that in and of itself is kind of horrifying. There's a little bit of poignancy to that. Any final thoughts? Let's go around the horn. Uh, Vic, uh, what, what's, your, what's your parting shot t- to, this, uh, to this picture? I really wish I had thought to name my son Dick Warlock Wheat. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you know, maybe you'll have a third one. Who knows? Dick Wheatlock. <laughs> yeah. All right, Emily, what are your, uh, where do you want to leave us? I think that this is a really fun film. I think that after listening to our podcast here, everyone should go out, watch it again, get a bunch of friends, get some beers, get some popcorn, and have fun with it. Don't take it so seriously. Yeah. Just have a good time. Yeah, absolutely. I, I tend to agree. I mean, I, I think that it isn't a movie yeah, to, to really think about what it could have been. I mean, I think that we should think about, you know, maybe future projects or, um, you know, where we can go from here. Or the here. remake. Right. I the like The remake, the gritty yeah. remake. Love it. Love it. What's the Chris Nolan version of this movie? You know? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, as a, as a weird curiosity piece like i'm not gonna be bored by this film i i I could watch this again anytime all right mike what do you think i find this a thoroughly enjoyable film i i I liked it when i was a kid and i I, there was a period of time when the the broader elements made were 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 bumping me a lot harder than they are these days but when i watch it for this podcast i I just kind of thoroughly enjoyed the entire thing all the way through i accepted the warts and all uh elements of the film when it's strong, it's like it's cranking it out of the park, man. Uh, you know, name another film where like a kid's head gets turned into snakes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> we like... just kind of shredded the second one. I certainly, you know, I wouldn't call it a joyless exercise, but I, I watched that movie and I was like kind of half engaged and I saw it twice. But this movie, I'm with it and I'm interested. And yeah, there's an element of cheese for sure. But it's just... Mm-hmm. It's just kind of like a Carpenter movie in in some really strong ways. Like it, it's it's not at the same level of quality, but it's like a cousin to Big Trouble in Little China in some ways, where it's just right, ballsy right. and crazy, and I, I just really enjoy it. Yeah, Halloween too is is kind of there's a feel to that entire movie where no one who made it actually wanted to make it. it's like like, oh okay fine we'll make another fucking michael myers movie but we're gonna blow him up decision yeah so three i would say the closest analogy in our cinematic culture to halloween three is gremlins Mm two these movies have made it we've made enough money off of this franchise we we need another one and it's like oh you want another one huh i'll (laughs) I'll give you another one (laughs) i'd say that goes completely completely off the rails uh either successfully or not so yeah but you gotta applaud Uh, him for that uh, so emily are you gonna be uh in in attendance on the may 9th screening of halloween 4 i hope to be i should be uh volunteering for scream fest again because it's what i do when i have any free time Uh they have that screening coming up and then they have another one this month of dance of the dead wow another fun uh that one's a zombie flick 
Well, Mike, but, you know well uh, that we are going to release this episode in June, so <laughs> that's going to be pretty irrelevant. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thank you guys so much for uh, contributing to a, a really lively and sometimes contentious discussion. I hope everyone enjoyed <laughs> listening to it. And uh, Shut we'll the fuck soon. up, John. <laughs> Vic, I will uh, punch you. Yes, uh, special thanks to our uh, special guest, uh, Emily Rua. Uh, hope to have you on again uh, for a future episode sometime. Thanks. I hope to be on again, too. All right. Ruby. All right. Take Adios. Take it easy, guys. Bye. Bye. Thank you.